Father, we, we just want to come before you and thank you for your word, which is unchanging. We thank you, Lord God, that your son, Jesus, is also the word. We thank you, Lord, for the word you have for us tonight. Speak to us, Lord. Help us to hear from you. And we pray this in your wonderful name. Amen. Okay, well, um, it's great to be with you this evening. Uh, my name is Peter, um, and I'm one of the members of the church here. And today uh, is a powerful but quite hard message, actually. Um, and uh, we're following on in our series from Acts. And just to remind ourselves, um, the context of Acts. Um, well, it describes the growth of the church from the very beginning. Um, it's been described as a spreading flame. And it was written to strengthen the early church, the early believers, the small band of Christians, and to support the spread of the gospel. It says in Acts 1, verse 8, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And in this series, uh, some of the highlights that have been coming out um, have been quite exciting. We've looked at how um, the Holy Spirit came, and Jews from every nation heard God speak, heard people praising God in their own languages. Uh, we've, heard, um, we've looked at miraculous healings, in the name of Jesus. We looked at courage under fire. So Narek was sharing wonderfully the other, other, other evening. And last week we had uh, Sophie leading a reflective time and she was sharing about uh, how the early church, especially led by Peter and John, had marveled at how God was achieving his purposes. Um, they all prayed, the place was shaken, they were filled with the Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. And that's the context of what we're reading tonight. Uh, from the beginning, we can read of a, such a unity of purpose and in the spirit of this tiny but vibrant and dynamic early church. Um, so starting in the text from verse 32, it tells us that all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own but they shared everything they had. And this echoes, you know, just one chapter earlier, um, in a couple of chapters earlier in, in, in Acts 2.42, the same spirit where um, they were, all the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods. They gave to anyone as he had need. And... Um, there was such an incredible community atmosphere of unity, of sharing, of mutuality, of openness, of love. It's kind of amazing to read this again, isn't it, really? Just to see what the early church was like. And it seems, I don't know, is it shocking? Is it surprising? How could they share everything they had? It's a kind of, you know, it makes us think. But the, the New Testament church seems to have had something. Maybe we've forgotten it a bit, I don't know. But that zeal, that compassion that concern about injustice, that concern for the suffering, the poor. And, and there's also a link in verse 33. It's really interesting. Because the link says, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. It's interesting. There seems to be a link between that incredible culture where they were just releasing everything, wanting everyone to share uh, in, 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 in all their needs, and the power of the, the gospel, the testimony to the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus had defeated death, and all who believed in him would have eternal life. And so it's just, there's that amazing link. 
And um, I think it's, it's interesting, you know, when we think of our own lives, the quality of our relationships, you know, I mean, I work for Surrey County Council as a teacher. I think, so what about the other people I work with? Do they see, wow, you know, this amazing testimony in my life? Sometimes I, I, I don't quite think so. And, um, but, you know, we'll see tonight what the Lord has to say for us on this issue of genuine generosity. And to help unpack this passage a little bit, I, I want to look at three characteristics that are represented in attitudes toward genu- genuine generosity. And we're going to look at these three things and see how we match up. Um, and it's looking at this difficult topic of money. It's a really difficult topic, challenging, but we all need it. Uh, it does affect our lives. And maybe this is just a beginning topic. I mean, we're just scratching the surface, I think, tonight in a way. Um, but sometimes in the church, I think, I think we're not always very good at talking about some of these, these, these things. And um, I think just standing here, I think of, of some significant acts of genuine generosity in Emmanuel. And uh, we think about the hardship fund. We think about the hampers. Um, When we think about the mission gift day every year, the church is involved in the mission gift day. And, you know, that that raises thousands and thousands. And this year it was this church in Moldova that the young people had gone out to visit. And the mission gift day tied in with that. And I can't remember the exact total, but many thousands of pounds were given, released for that project. So there's wonderful generosity happening, and of course many gifts that no one ever knows about, which maybe are the most beautiful ones. You know, we don't know about legacies and other things. And so there is a lot of um, stuff happening. And I remember coming here as a youngster, uh, and I, you know, was at this church for a year, and then I went away, and I came back, and I came to this building, and the tower was there, and there was plastic sheets over it because it was still being, the roof was still being finished. It was incredible. Some of you guys remember that, yeah? Some of you people remember that, yeah? And, where, you know, it cost a million pounds or something, and they built the parish centre of the church. Where did that money come from? People releasing resources. And it wasn't, as I remember it, you know, one or two big corporate people that gave massive donations. It was lots and lots of people sacrificially giving. And so we've got that, uh, you know, there's a legacy, there's some, some really exciting things um, when you think about testimony of genuine generosity in this church. But even think about these real-life examples. I wonder, I don't know, how do we compare? Is there a sense that we can grow in this area? So from the text, let's have a little look and see what we can learn from it. It tells us that um, as we go on from verse 32 in Acts, uh, hold on, yeah, Acts chapter 4, um, it tells us, um, from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. And so there's an interesting point here um, that uh, just struck me. Um, the text is not saying that anyone with possessions had to sell them. This wasn't a rule. It was that from time to time, people sold it. It was completely voluntary. And that's a beautiful thing. And it doesn't suggest that ownership of property in itself is or was somehow a sin. Um, But one little clue I noticed here as we looked at this, from time to time, they sold their things and they brought the money from the sales. And where did they put it? They put it at the apostles' feet. Now, I brought a lot of money here tonight. Oh, it's quite heavy. 
It's a, a jar full of coins, all right? And I think it's quite interesting because um, uh, my family, we lived in, in Central Asia for some years, and that's a majority Muslim country, Muslim, Kyrgyzstan, majority Muslim country. And if you are with Muslims or Muslims, uh, Christians from Muslim background, when you've got the, 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 the Bible, you would never put the Bible on the floor. If you, do, you know somebody's sitting on the floor and you're doing Bible, it would be, you know, often be very offensive to put the Bible on the floor because the floor is the most disrespectful place. It's where the feet are, you know. And um, so they would always put the Bible on a high place. They would put it on a higher place and because it was respected. But it's interesting here, when we read this text, and I think there's one little tiny clue, that um, what they did was actually put the money at the disciples' feet. So it wasn't something that they were holding up as the most important thing in their life. And I think this is quite interesting. Um, and uh, just trying to see where I am in my notes here. So they bought the money, put it at the apostles' feet, and this suggests that money wasn't the most important thing. Um, it wasn't the most treasured. And... Um, Notice also that in verse 34, it tells us there were no needy persons among them. And this suggests that the sale of possessions and release of fund was for the fellow believers in the church. It's quite interesting. This was actually something within the church. And the compassion was there for others in the body of Christ. And, you know, we can read other passages in Romans 12, verse 4. Uh, in Christ, we who are many form one body. And there's that, that sense of it. it was, they were starting off. Um, and I remember years ago we were going an American pastor sharing, and uh, you know he said that in his church, um, so many people had you know come and confidentially confi- confided sexual things to him. But he said he could count on one hand the number of times people had come and told them the state of their bank balance, exactly how much were they in debt or whether you know how much money was in there, what their income was. So he said it's interesting that there was almost an area of life that people didn't talk about. It was kind of secret. But, um, well, with God, there aren't any secrets, are there? So we need to be open to him about our finances. And I just wanted to just say, if we get so stressed about financial issues, maybe we need to seek out someone in the church. And, you know, there is the CAP, isn't there, the CAP? I think, John, you know about the CAP? John Evans at the back there. Sorry, John, to... to but, you know, if you, if you had a major stress about debt, for example, there are places you can go to get advice about it. So I just mentioned that. Um, because, uh, you know, basically, uh, if we're getting so stressed about finances, we need, to, we need to be open, in a sense, about not trying to bear the burden ourselves, and we need to have a prayerful response to it. So going on in verse 36, let's crack on a little bit, we're introduced to the first of the characteristics I wanted to talk about, and that was looking at this person, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He sold a field he owned, brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. And, you know, I just thought, how can I summarise one characteristic for, for Joseph or Barnabas? And I think it was like the idea of first love, the first love. And, you know, from Revelation, when there's those letters in, in, in the beginning of Revelation, you know, you've lost your first love, he says about the, the, the Ephesian church. But for Barnabas, his first love was God. He kept hold of that. And he was putting God at the top, not his finances, and um, interestingly, technically he was a Levite. They weren't supposedly meant to, read, to own land, one commentator was writing. 
Um, maybe he sold some land in Cyprus. We don't know. It doesn't tell us. But we do know that Barnabas features later in the New Testament, and he really is an incredible figure. Remember, he, he kind of rescued St. Paul, Paul after Paul had, been, had the conversion on the road to Damascus. Paul went to Jerusalem. The, the, uh, the disciples didn't want to talk to him, and yet Barnabas came and took Paul along. So Barnabas is an incredible guy, and his first love, his first love was God. And he showed proactivity, courage. He was a courageous guy. And um, anyway, he did that. The next characteristic I want to look at is on the next section. Now, if I was going to end in chapter 4, that would be lovely. But unfortunately, Frank's included chapter 5 in today's text. Ananias and Sapphira. What amazing. Interesting. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wise full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Um, and um, then, okay, that's, let me just start there. The first thing to notice here, um, no, I'm going to read on, sorry, verse 3. Peter said to him, Ananias, how is it that Satan so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for some, for yourself, some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. And the first thing to notice here is the accusation that Peter makes is that they had lied. Clearly, Ananias and Sapphira had told the disciples that what this, this sum was the whole sum of the money from the field they'd sold. But secretly, they kept some back. They kept some back. It then tells us three hours later, Ananias, um, three hours later, uh, it tells us, his wife came, not knowing what had happened. Peter said, tell me, is this the price you paid? Yes, this is the price. How could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out too. And so here is this idea. And the second, the first point I mention is about Barnabas. We can say that his first love was towards God. For Ananias and Sapphira, the characteristic was deception. They thought they could somehow deceive God. And, you know, it's shocking when we read this text. Um, it's interesting that some commentators have suggested that because this offence resulted in immediate death, capital punishment, that somehow Ananias and Sapphira, maybe they were just fictitious characters. Maybe they were like metaphors, you know, they didn't really exist because you know, how could God be so terrible? But actually it just doesn't fit in with the narrative of Acts the Apostles. It's, it's a narrative, it's a story. All of these events, we can see what happened. And uh, we can't really explain away this incredible, uh, this incredibly tough story uh, account that we've got here. Um, so basically... Deception, that's the, the key word I put for them. And it, there's an echo from the Old Testament. There was a guy called Achan. I don't know if you remember when Je uh, Jericho was being taken by the, the Israelites, prayed around Jericho, and this one guy hoarded some of the um, valuable materials that had been in Jericho. He, he took a Babylonian robe, some silver, a wedge of gold. He buried them, hid them under his tent, and uh, all the articles had been dedicated to destruction. And Achan's sin was that he had taken some of the devoted things. 
I think this is again a bit of a clue about the context for Ananias and Sapphira. The accusation against them was they'd made an offering of money from the proceeds from a property sale. Well, they must have said what they were doing. They said, we were going to give all the money to the church. All right? In this money, in a sense, by saying that, they were devoting that money to God. But it was a deception because they were keeping some back for themselves. Um, and the fact that, like Barnabas, they laid the, feet, the, the gift at the apostles' feet, you know, it's very interesting. In this case, it wasn't the same motivation. Their concern, it seems, was public perception, their reputation. They wanted to be, you know, I'm giving this, look at me, I'm so fantastic, look what I'm doing, look what we're doing. Their reputation for spiritual depth, um, they wanted the admiration, the desire for public praise. Um, and they said it was all the money was for the poor, but in reality they were clothing, hoarding something close to their hearts. What was their first love? What is my first love? So like Aiken, they've been enticed by the beauty of finance and gold. Um, now the third characteristic we've talked about, uh, the first love, we've talked about deception. And the third characteristic is the holiness of God. And, you know, it's, it's just, I was thinking, how could I put the third characteristic? And I felt, yeah, the holiness of God is, is so core to this whole area. Because God wants and expects our gifts of worship, we've been worshipping tonight, our gifts of service and gifts of love. It's not just money that we give, is it? But the character of, our, our, of God himself, he models generosity. He gave of his own son, who died on the cross. He gave of himself. Can you imagine a more precious gift? And the sense is that everything belongs to God anyway, and only of him do we give. He owns the cattle of a thousand hills. And he entrusts us with material wealth. He blesses us, and he wants us to use it, and presumably he wants us to enjoy it as well. But firstly, to honour him, to give him the first fruits. Um, and... In, in Matthew 6.24, it says, No one can serve two masters. You either um, you cannot serve both God and money. And Ananias and, and Sapphira had agreed to put the Holy Spirit to the test, their desire for public recognition. And, of course, there must have been greed there as well. So, you know, anyway, so it was the same for Achan. Was the punishment fair? It seems so hard. But God's character is one that does desire, demand, undivided loyalty. He places integrity at the heart of his church and honesty in our dealings with him. And they were secretly planning to keep some of the money. God wouldn't know. But as we know, God knows everything. And um, the first commandment, Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. The Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal. The Bible is steeped in lots of texts about money, you know, I'm just beginning on this journey myself to learn about all of this. But there is a cost to the gospel, not just in the Old Testament. God is our judge as well as our saviour. Philippians 2.12 says we should work out our salvation with fear and trembling. God is a jealous God. He wants our wholehearted devotion. So he wants us to grow spiritually. So we have to pray for wisdom in this. What is he saying to me about my money? 
He wants us to be more like him, to grow together as church. Now, I don't have the answers to the very short talk tonight, but I just pray that, you know, we can come before God and ask, Lord, what do you want me to do about my finances? Sometimes that may be talking to someone else, planning ahead carefully. And I'm trying to learn more about this myself. And it's especially tough. We know how many needs there are around the world. Needs are so intense. And um, so... I know that's a reality. Um, God wants to impact all areas of our life. And what does it, how does this reflect to our own attitude of being generous? Uh, you may have this well sorted out. Um, the last thing I just want to say as we wind up is that what application can we have for this text? Well, in the Old Testament, in, in Leviticus, one model about finance is about the tithe. And, you know, you, you may well be familiar with this. Um, it says here, it's one guideline, is a, a 10% of our income if we release it for the Lord. And um, this is not a command, it's a, it's a guideline, and many Christians do follow that guideline. So we think about these things, our first love. We think about, we cannot deceive God. We think about the holiness of God in this whole issue of finance. And just to tie up, I have a little story about one Christian. I heard this story some years ago, and I dug it up again, um, and it intrigued me. I wonder, do you brush your teeth with Colgate toothpaste? Do you know the, tooth, do you know the Colbert, Colgate toothpaste? Eh? All right, because um, Colgate, there's a guy called William Colgate, and he was the founder of the Colgate Palmolive um, Empire. And they've got their offices in Guildford, haven't they, just down the road. And he was born in Kent in 1783, and his father was a supporter of the French Revolution and the American Revolution, and as a result, he had to emigrate to America. It wasn't politically acceptable here. And uh, he emigrated to Baltimore in USA. And William got a job as an apprentice soap maker, and he learned all about making soap. And when he was 16, he decided to leave home, to go to New York, and he was going to set up his own soap business. And he was on this ship or this boat going down this canal to New York. I have to look at the geography. I don't know where there's a canal going to New York. But on this boat going to, to New York. And the captain of the boat said, what are you going to do? And he said, well, I'm going to go and start my own business to make soap. And the captain said, yes, you will be the most successful soap maker in New York. I believe that. But one thing you need to remember is that everything you do when you make your soap is that all that soap and all the profits you've got are given from God. And you should honour him by sharing what you earn. You should tithe. And so William Colgate was a strong Christian. He was a Presbyterian, and then he was baptised in a Baptist church. I can't quite figure out how that worked. But he gave 10% of all, his, all of his income. And after a while, he felt, no, you know, the company was blessed. He was making more profits. He said, no he released 20%. And then he felt, no, God's saying, no, I want to release more. He released 30%. And finally, he released 50% of all the income from the Colgate profits from the income. So maybe uh, next time you brush your teeth, you can think about William Colgate. Amen.